So happy new year, everyone. Happy new year. 2011. So tonight I want to talk about a blameless life. A blameless life. So we're putting the Satipatthana Sutta aside and uh, bringing in a talk that I think uh, brings in some of the basic posture that we need to take uh, in terms of just an embodiment of the tradition. And as we take the refuges and precepts later this evening, I think that reinforces the uh, theme of the talk. So a blameless life is an interesting topic. First of all, we have to wonder what we mean by a blameless life. If we think that other people won't blame us, I don't think that's what's going to happen. In fact, the vicissitudes of life make it pretty clear that you will be blamed at some point in your life, regardless of what you do internally. In fact, a friend was over at the house and we were uh, having an interview together and instead of sitting down and doing our usual uh, sofa to chair talk, she wanted to take a walk. So we took a walk and uh, as we were walking, uh, I turned back to one of the neighbor's homes and I saw one of the more rumor-milled neighbor uh, <laughs> following our every step. And I thought, okay, so there, <laughs> that, that'll get back to my wife. There's no question about that. <laughs> but I'm, not, I'm blameless. I'm blameless. So, of course, blamelessness really is how we hold ourselves and the integrity that we hold ourselves. Regardless of what people read into that particular activity, we know. We know. And it's that knowing that is the confidence on which we can build and stand erect and take a firm and confident posture to life in general. Now, it's interesting because just because somebody is well-known or recognized doesn't mean that they are, they live a blameless life. We have two different standards. I went to the Picasso exhibit. Some of you probably have seen it, quite an extensive exhibit of Picasso's work, who was probably, I could say, the leading artist of the first half of the last, of the 20th century, for his innovation and for his creativity. He sort of was the vanguard, led the, wherever art was moving, he sort of was taking the first step in many different terms, turns in his life. But as a man, as, as I could, had, as I've learned from my art history courses, but also from this particular uh, exhibit, he, was, um, he wasn't blameless. <laughs> he had mistresses and he was um, perhaps uh, violent as well. And I was thinking, well, you know, here's a man who has immediate name recognition, a lot of fame, uh, and he knew that fame because he didn't die until the 1970s. But really, his character wasn't one in which you could hold in renown at all. And you just wonder, you know, what if he, if he could see both halves of that, which way he would have gone early on? You know, do you go towards recognition? Do you go towards the prominence? Do you go towards the name, the fame? 
Or do you go towards the slow evolution of character, of solidity of purpose and intention in the world? And which life is better lived? Certainly, uh, 50 years later, uh, we would be less of a culture without Picasso's works. I think that's true. But would we be even a better culture had he acted in a different kind of character? Because it takes all of us, really. So it's, it's an interesting question. I thought tonight I would break down this question of a blameless life into three parts. And to look at these parts as being really a continuum in and of themselves. Uh, and to look to see how each of these particular aspects of blamelessness sets us up for the next one and also begins to bring in the deepest teaching and fruition of the practice uh, as they develop. So the three aspects that I'm going to talk about tonight is one aspect is ending projection and I'll of course elaborate on each of these. The second is ethical integrity and then the third is faith. You think that's maybe a Christian word I slipped in? Uh, I will try to make it a Buddhist in, in meaning and purpose. <clears throat> so let's look first at uh, ending projection. No longer lashing out at the world from our internal reactivity. It's something, it's a note that I've played several times, uh, and many of you are familiar with it as we have gone through the Satipatthana Sutta, but just to bring everyone together on this, is that in whatever Dharma direction we're going to move, uh, we're never going to settle if we believe the world is doing something to us. How can we ever relax if it's being done to us? If we are mistrustful that around the next corner some ill intent uh, lies, we will, won't be able to relax. It's inconceivable that we could ever develop any true relationship to the world as long as we're suspicious of it. So what does this, mean? this sense of ending projection really mean? As we begin to look at our experience closer, we begin to see that we carry the causes of blame, the causes of that separation and isolation in us. It's not the world doing something to us, it's we're actively doing something to the world. And the way we flushed this out in the course of our last year's series is that we looked at the, the sense of feeling terms, that sense of pleasant and unpleasant, that we have an internal response to, a conditioned response to, with every experience that arises, external and internal. We meet that with a feeling tone, with a, a sense of whether that experience that I'm feeling, that I'm sensing, is pleasant, has a pleasant attribute, or an unpleasant, or, or neutral. And then, very quickly, once we have ascribed it a feeling tone, and that feeling tone is set within that experience, what rushes in is a whole depiction and narrative that's associated with the circumstances that are present in the environment, in reality, that verify uh, and uh, 
make credible that feeling tone. If it's pleasant, then I make the external situation that I'm involved in pleasant. I look out and see faces that I like and I can relax and enjoy myself or uh, try to perpetuate that feeling, never realizing that the feeling itself is coming from me. It's a conditioned response that I have to that perception. It's not coming from the person, my friend. My friend doesn't have a feeling, except the feeling I give my friend. And yet we so easily associate the person with the feeling and say, oh, you know, I really like that person. Well, you do really like that person, but the person isn't inherently likable or unlikable. That's, a, that's something that you give the person. You say, well, that's obvious. Is it? Is it obvious? So look around and just notice your experience, how easily we associate the, the external with the feeling. And then once that's invested in the external, then the external holds the narrative, holds the reason we like it. It holds the validation of that feeling. Once they're validated in separation, then we have to try to either avoid them if it's an unpleasant feeling or try to keep them around us if it's a pleasant feeling. And we go searching through life, looking for pleasant or unpleasant experiences never realizing that those unpleasant experiences are conditioned within us. In fact, the most pleasant experience that you have, I could, given torture chamber, could easily condition that out of you, or vice versa. And so there's a, there's a sobering quality to realize that the world doesn't hold any value. In fact, that's the reason we don't really ponder that to any degree of Sincerity, because we want the world to hold value. If the world doesn't hold value, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we, what's our, why are we chasing life the way it is if we're the one that holds the value and the earth is and the world is neutral? You see, we don't want that. We don't want that knowledge base. So, to keep that from occurring, we'll fuse it all together, blur it, become unconscious to where the feelings really lie. But when you're turning this thing back around, when you're on a spiritual direction, this is a necessity for every one of us to understand where, what the mind is doing to the world so that we can re-own the accountability that we have for doing what we are doing to the world. And when this moves into a kind of a, a choiceless and unconscious projection, then your anger, your violence, your prejudice is all externally exposed. Where is that coming from? It's coming from the areas of your own character which, you, which we refuse to acknowledge. And since it feels so awful to have those qualities in us, we project them externally onto a culture, an ethnic group or whatever, and then keep that feeling of violence or hatred externalized onto that group. And therefore we can separate ourselves from our own pain. Just hear this. This is insanity. But don't let us not pretend we don't do it. Or is there anyone in this room that has no prejudice? 
and says, so the world is not to blame. What do you think a blameless life means? That's very sobering. And it doesn't need, you can't come to that resolution by listening to me. You have to really investigate it for yourself in your own mind to see how that is the truth. And how we continually, we see the pain we cause. <clears throat> the pain we cause is because of the pain we are in. When we don't understand that the nature of the beast, the projection is in us, and we are fighting with that particular attribute in us because we don't like it and there's a tension within us, that tension is externalized onto that ethnic group or gender and then we create the same pain that we're feeling in us ex externalized. Now look at all forms of violence because that's the root. See it's not done, it's d violence is created from one's internal pain. It's all from suffering. It's all because we're suffering unacknowledged unconsciously that there is this disposition that we find ourselves in now and until and unless we own our own source of suffering our own sense of of accountability to those attributes and, and until and unless we settle with those we'll continually berate and rage at the world externally. So you see, begin, hopefully you begin to see how important it is to turn this thing around. You know, it's like some, uh, if you're fundamental in any religion, and there are Buddhist fundamentalists, you're riddled with doubt. And so in order to compensate for that sense of doubt, which is untenable to the person who has a strong belief system in the religion. Doubt is seen as a uh, counter force of good. Then we compensate with righteousness. Exactly. The energy doesn't... You, there's a conservation of energy here. The energy that has been unconscious internally in exactly the same proportion gets externalized. And instead of an internal resistance to my own character, unacknowledged, it becomes externalized. And so you can see the rage of the world is really the viciousness of one's own attribute. Are you ready to hear that? Because this is really where the Dharma takes hold. This is where the rubber meets the road here. To understand this. Um, so, ending that projection and being accountable. Understanding how the mind works. How it divides things out. 
And once divided, it takes its safe seat in the qualities it enjoys and projects everything external. And to become conscious is to, is to gain a wholeness of mind, is to no longer let those attributes be externalized at all, but to, just, but to be owned, to be accessed, to be dealt with, to be seen. And that awareness at all begins to take off the reactivity that's associated with it. And in the story, the narrative that holds such volatility to that particular tree. But there's a lot of work that most of us need to do to settle ourselves sufficiently with our own internal processes so that projection doesn't occur. So that a blameless life can can be our choice. The second in these three attributes of a blameless life is the one I want to spend the most time on and that's ethical integrity and really the basis for tonight in uh, inviting refuges and precepts. Ethical integrity, um, when, when we live in isolation, when we live in our projection, we live in extreme isolation. And you can see that as the far end of one continuum. Someone who is completely unconscious to their habits, to their internal world, which they, where they don't have any relaxation with their internal processes, lives in extreme isolation. They have to, because they're projecting everything out from them. Divide the world very definitively between what I, what me and everything else. But as we become more conscious, as we become more accepting, self-accepting, more allowing of this internal process, then life moves from isolation to integration. And it passes through, it has to pass through once from abject projection to ethical integrity. This is the way this continuum unfolds. Ethical integrity is beautiful. When someone who is just beginning meditation brings that first glance of self-awareness at themselves into their mind, they, the first thing that is revealed is their dishonesty. My God, look how selfish I've been. I am, not I've been. Look how contracted I feel. Look how full of reactivity. And so many people stop right there. It's too much. That's it. I'm out of here. I didn't get into it for this. I wanted relaxation, calm, tranquility. And all I'm getting is myself. (laughs) And if I can just stay the course, which most, I would say most don't, most bail out, it's okay. But you haven't. And so you've stayed the course sufficiently. And you realize then that that revelation, as difficult as it initially is, is actually what's happening is that it's always been there. It isn't that the meditation has done something awful to me and made me more selfish. It's I'm now noticing the selfishness that I've always inhabited. And the fact that I can now see it, the fact that it is now recognized, the fact that I can work with it, relax to it, 
see it makes it workable, makes it available, makes it unconcealed, makes it begins to have it integrated into the system. Not so that I'm, I'm selfish and by God that's the way I am, but I'm selfish and that is the way I necessarily have to be. There are choices here. There is another way. And, and when that occurs, and if people stay in the practice long enough for really them to, to feel that they have an alternative choice, and if there is an intention, and this needs underlining in red, if there's an intention not to be selfish, but to move towards a more integrated life, then in fact it will happen. The one component that is needed for you besides your diligence of observation is your intention that your life needs to go in that direction. Now we are starting a new year and new years are full of new year's resolutions. I never lived up to a new year's resolution because it was never my intention to do so. It always something that either my family wanted to hear from me or religion or something but it was never deeply embedded in me that this is what I wanted. If it is, then the resolution sticks and we start walking this thing in a way, doesn't mean there aren't backslides, that we don't constantly make mistakes along the way, but the beauty of this practice is that it holds that. It holds mistakes Beautifully it holds mistakes. It's not built upon moral righteousness. It's not built upon a tight uh, and narrow corridor. It's built upon a relaxed style of learning and discovering and finding where it is that those mistakes are happening and what motivated that lie. Not how awful I am for having told that lie, which is the other end of the, of the continuum, but what is it? What motivated that? That's interesting that I would lie in that situation. What, what was it that I was trying to protect? Let me look and see if what I was trying to protect really needs protection. See, that's a different, that's a softness of heart. That's a recovery of self, not a condemnation of self. That's holding yourself in your heart. And that inevitably will move towards more integration. Moves inevitably towards interpersonal interaction because it's through others that those things are most frequently and obviously revealed. So our, eth our ethical behavior will be as strong as, on our, as our intention to explore our pain. Our ethical behavior will be as strong as our intention to explore our pain. Because we will be unethical because we're in pain, unobserved and conditioned pain. So if you have the intention to explore your pain, you can be sure that in that exploration it will take you to ethical integration. You don't have to try to be good. You just have to feel fed up with the pain you're in and want to know what it's about. That's the way out of this thing. And the precepts, we bring the precepts in, and they're so, they're so beautiful. I used to, uh, because I was reeling from my days of Christian ethics, which were often felt forced, I felt forced within them, 
I took the precepts on the same way. I don't, I'm not, uh, for the first years I was in, don't talk to me about the precepts, I'm just interested in mindfulness. Well, you, you, it doesn't work that way because the precepts give a structure to our longing. They allow us to climb up the ladder out of this, this container of, of uh, selfishness and self-investment and looking through the world only through the eyes of my own greed and of my own wanting. And when we first start, that's all we see. We just see our big eyes of wanting. And the world is really being sacrificed for our needs. And so because there is an intention that accompanies a sincere sitter, even in the beginning, to no longer live his or her life in accordance with that, then you're looking for some structure, some way to, to ascend, to come out of this thing. And the precepts allow that rung by rung ascension. It's beautiful, but you have to use them in a correct and perceptive manner, or they just take us right back down to the hell that we have come from. If we use them in terms of self-judgment, that we weren't good enough that time and how can we be better, then it just holds us in place. It doesn't allow us to breathe. But if we use it in terms of self-discovery, as I mentioned, to undertake the training, right? So it's not an absolute. I'm just going to start, okay, I'm just going to put put this training wheel on, just see how I can do. I undertake the training. That's the way the precepts are framed. To refrain from, not thou shalt not, but to refrain from. And in my heart, I don't care how many mistakes I make, but ultimate failure is not an option. I'm not going back to be more selfish. I'm just not going to do that. I can see what selfishness does to the world. I'm not going back that way. So I can fall and lapse many, many times. That's fine. I will, but I'll pick myself up, dust myself off, and I'll continue the journey forward. That means that failure will never be an option. I'm always marching it forward. And we can use this to undertake the training and this refrain from as a pause. And I'd like to just speak for a moment about the pause. It's it's such an underutilized and so available resource to us to just pause, just pause, be able to break the link of the conditioned chain of the events as they transpire, as the dominoes, as they fall, just to reach in and pull one domino out. This is the true meaning for New Year's resolution. It's just to to reflect upon, to see whether my life is headed in the way I want it to, if I continue to act in this way, what it's going to look like in character as that character builds. Do I want my life to look like this when I die? Because, as I mentioned many times, we die in character. And the character is being built moment after moment by your own intentions. So you just extrapolate that out, add the number of years until your death, and there you are. Except now you're harder and more conditioned in that way than you've ever been. Selfishness doesn't go by just... It goes with an intentionality to work and live differently and the willingness to discover what it is that keeps me within this frame of reference all this time. I want to know. 
It's that resolve, the resolve of the heart. See, that's, that's the language of the heart. The language of the heart now is flushing out those areas where I have been unconscious and ill-intended. And is this activity that I'm doing and I'm pausing from, is it going to harm me or someone else? It's a beautiful question just to ask in that. Am I getting set to unleash harm? And even if you're a beginning meditator, it doesn't matter. There is in you the, the already experiencing of the desire not to hurt this world any longer. That kernel of truth is already inspired sufficiently in you that it's moving and having its own course of action. Now there are levels to the precepts and some of them are paradoxical to where this eventually takes, but ethical integrity really starts with character. So you say, character? I thought this was about no self. (laughs) Well, you have to live with those paradoxes. Character simmers over the low heat of precepts. You just keep yourself within that wishing no harm and watching where it is that you still create harm without finding moralistic fault with yourself. And that movement is inevitably towards an open field of goodness. An open field of goodness. Trumpa Rinpoche called it basic goodness. where there is not any movement whatsoever to create harm. There's not even, there could not arise an intention, a deliberate intent. Still unconscious old patterns can come up, but not a conscious intention. That's almost an oxymoron, a conscious intention to harm. Those are almost, that's almost an oxymoron. Because if you're conscious, you will not have an intention on it. You see how important it is? All this new research on mindfulness, which is just self-awareness. You think, where have you been? Why is this, like, doesn't, how can you have therapy without being conscious? How can you have any change at all without being conscious? Because conscious is the way that one changes and grows out of oneself. So this character, as it develops, and there are certain environments that really bring a very refined sense of character. I was walking with Joseph. He has a wonderful sense, Joseph Goldstein. Uh, has a wonderful character, very refined, but he's been really living as a monk, although he's a layperson, for, well, since he was out of college. And But I said, God, Joseph, there you are, you know, your character is so beautiful. And he says, um, and I said, here I am in the city light, and I feel like, you know, like a, a sea urchin, you know, with... <laughs> He said, uh, he said something really, he said, the Dharma needs both, he said. Dharma. 
I said, woo! <laughs> it does need both. But in general, in general, the, the smoothness uh, may not be as obvious, but inside there's a gentleness. Inside there's a kindness. The, the quality of the, the expression of personality may be very individual and very sometimes appearing to be very coarse, but inside there's a basic sense of kindness for others and safety, of not intruding on another person uh, without their permission, of trust and honesty. And character, character development of character provides that sense of honesty, that sense of you're safe with me. Basically, you have nothing to fear. It's the gift of non-fear. A beautiful gift indeed. So we, we walk through this field of human relationships while moving into silence. Because as we begin to have the rough edges of our pain understood, as we begin to project less of our life onto the living situation, and we become more accountable to our inward processes and more attuned and accepting of those processes, we grow deeper in silence. The narrative, the constant self-bickering and the resistance to everything begins to do diminished. And as resistance diminishes, so does the internal speaking, the internal dialoguing. And there's this beautiful attribute of quietude that comes. And the quietude is really the opening of that space of basic goodness, that quietude where everything is basically, it's just goodness. It just, I don't know, it's, it's, that it's not contrived. It isn't goodness because I want to be good. It's goodness in the absence of that image entirely. It's goodness because of the, of the truth of interconnection. As we get quieter, that truth becomes more obvious. And as that truth becomes more obvious, behaviors mirror that obviousness. And so there isn't struggle or resistance or contempt. or it's not, There's no backlash to it. So this walking into relationship while moving into silence is a beautiful metaphor for an involved urban Buddhist. Because relationship is all around us. Some of us are more reclusive than others, but still you can't get out of relationship. We're always relating to ourselves, to others. And yet being able and being conscious with that nature of that relationship brings us into a deeper sense of quietude, a, deep, deeper, a deeper sense of permission for that expression of self to occur. It's so interesting that the way we get out of this thing is through love and acceptance. The way we got into it was through tension and projection. And we would love to think that we could get ourselves out of it through projecting further and being more tense. And so we try to do that with ourselves being at the 
helm of this thing. But the nature of self is that it's based in tension. So if you're at the helm, you can bet your practice is based in that struggle. What happens is that we come into vulnerability. And vulnerability, I was watching this uh, um, TED. You know TED? That does, they have these uh, conferences where innovative speakers come. Well, this one woman was an MSW and she'd been studying compassion for six years, really very well. And she said, after flushing out all these dialogues and questionnaires and everything, she said, you can't come to compassion after six years without vulnerability. I said, she could have gotten that in the beginning class. <laughs> it was so it seems so obvious to me. Of course you can't do that. Of course, you, vulnerability and brutality can occur simultaneously. And it's the protection from our vulnerability that makes us brutal. It's because we are not willing to be vulnerable that we become brutal. We think vulnerability is defenselessness. And in order to defend ourselves, we have to be hostile. We have to be violent. We have to be angry. And so our normal reactivity when we feel vulnerable is to be vengeful. Instead, if we allow ourselves to feel the vulnerability and the immediate knee-jerk response to become defense, to build up our defenses, if we just allow ourselves to feel and abide within that vulnerability, what comes out of that is the heart. The heart emerges. And all we have to do is say, is to be honest. You know, okay, so this is the situation. This is it. That's all vulnerability is. It's not to protect or defend ourselves. Not to defend. Why would we want to defend anyway? If we wanted to understand, we wouldn't want to defend. If we want to defend, it means we don't want to understand. You want to protect what you don't want to understand. This isn't based upon survival of the fittest. This isn't an evolutionary hierarchy here. This is available to everyone. And because it's universal, it has to have universal traits. It has to be fundamentally based in what is universally true. And so then this ethical integrity takes us into wise view and ethical life begins to bring us into this sense of interconnectedness now I want to say something even if I go over the time a little bit just there is ethical life under samadhi practice and there is ethical life under wisdom practice and it, there, it's extraordinarily important that you realize the difference because it's very clear in this tradition, the difference. 
Ethical conduct under samadhi practice is self-driven. There is such a high uh, goal attainment in this tradition around samadhi and sharpening that sense of, of concentration and focus. But that takes self. That takes self-will. That takes self-focus. And in fact, it takes some form of self-ambition. And therefore, the morality that builds around that is also a morality of self. Now, a practice, ethical conduct in, rely, in alignment with wisdom isn't based around self. It's based around, relief, around emptiness. It's based upon seeing what the nature of reality is, not upon forcing a particular quality of mind forward, but of seeing the nature of reality. And so wisdom practice is going to find itself into the natural, organic, state of being. Whereas samadhi practice, if it's unbalanced, I don't mean that any practice is going to have both components, but if it becomes too strongly infused and invested in the samadhi, because the samadhi, we love it because we can do it, and we can feel it, and we can show it to others. It's like having a laser beam where you could cut down a pole. Oh, you can have powers that could do much more than that. And so, with the sense of self unresolved in its power issues, will go towards that particular power, that particular quality. But the, but the ethical conduct that comes out of that, one person who was very strong in samadhi, who was a Zen teacher, said, what do we need precepts for anyway? You see, we just throw it out. That's a samadhi-based practice. Wisdom-based practice never questions it, understands completely. So I just say that for those of you who are off on your own without guidance. Remembering that sila, bedrock, means bedrock. The word sila means bedrock. But its ethical conduct is a parami. A parami is a natural state of mind. A parami is, is an attribute of awareness itself. When we release all tension, that's what we find, is a, is a natural morality, is a basic goodness, is a generosity, is a kindness, is a patience. Those are all different paramis. I like going towards what is natural, and that's what I teach. And, but it may not be what you're longing for. So just to know that. The path of emptiness is the path of sufficiency. It's taking the moment sufficient. It's sufficient. This is sufficient. Why don't I think it's sufficient? That's what needs to be looked at. Not that the basic premise is that it is sufficient. Period. Now, why is it that I don't think it is? That's what needs to be examined. It's not that I take the fact that I don't think it is sufficient to be the truth and then I try to find sufficiency. That's samadhi practice. This is sufficient. 
What makes you think it isn't? Then why aren't we aware of that? Why aren't we looking at the very source of the pain that creates the attitude of insufficiency? On to faith. (laughs) Faith is the application of integrity. I love, I love faith because it's based on trust. You know, I couldn't figure out what faith was and I, I was not going to have anybody tell me what faith is. I just absolutely was going to throw it all in the bag. If I couldn't figure it out, you've got to get to this point where you, I need to know for myself. So I was doing walking meditation once. Just what is faith? And I took this, a step and I lost the memory that there was a ground that was going to be under that step. So I wasn't sure whether the step was just going to go forever, you just, or whether or what. And I real, and then it stopped. And I real, oh, that was faith. I, I realized I took that step out of faith. You see, what's going to catch us here? If you're going to give, if you're going to see through yourself, what's the, what's going to catch you? Where are you going to fall? What's going to... You, you ever play the game with your brother and sister where you fall back and I'll catch you? You know, you. it's like, I don't know. You know, you didn't do it. You know, remember that argument? I don't... <clears throat> so what's going to catch us here? <clears throat> As we move from a projected reality, listen carefully, as you, we move out of a projected reality, there is a shift of identification that goes from the container, me, and it's all up to me, to the contained, to what holds it all. Not the manifestation, but what holds the manifestation. There is a shifting out of the form of life into the formless, into the, into the presence of life the presence that holds all form. And there's a deep resolution of trust into that presence. It doesn't, I don't know where it's going. It's not of my making. It's not going where I want it to go, obviously, because every time I want something, it goes the other way, or rarely goes the same way. So it's not going to follow my dictate. Still, can it, is it trusting? Is it trustable? Trustable? Is it w- trustworthy? Well, what's my option? My option is that it's not and I'm going to continue on in my own force of will. Those are the options. There, aren't, there isn't a third option. It's either going to be up to me or it's not going to be up to me. And if it's not up to me, what's it going to be up to? Because something's got to catch my fall. Where's my foot going to land? This is the culmination of ethical conduct. This is the culmination of a life and moved from the continuum of a projected, inserted, reactive state of selfish contraction into the ethical plane and further interaction 
and finally to faith itself. <clears throat> there was no faith when it was all projected out. It was all defended. It all meant something that I had to protect myself from. I Anything to keep me from my own pain. So you hold my pain. I can't stand it. And to what? The faith that the pain means nothing. I can see the pain. Why? Because it means nothing. There's no implication. It's not implying anything. And therefore it can be completely seen. The resolution. So when we take precepts tonight, keep the intention to move this thing towards that basic goodness of heart that includes all and all attributes within oneself. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.